If you haven't already, let me invite you, let's turn our attention to the text. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. The passage our friend Stephanie just, just read. This morning, we are going to consider one of the most debated passages in the New Testament. Yeah, and you can see why as you were listening to it. Women instructed to be silent, submissive, saved through childbearing. <laughs> what? <laughs> right? Come on, Paul. Okay, I, I've been a pastor now for uh, 10 years, and this is probably the most difficult passage I've ever preached on. Uh, and, and the Apostle Paul, or the Apostle Peter, in fact, when he's, he's writing his letter, he comments on the letters of Paul, and he says this phrase, there are some things in them, referring to Paul's letters, that are hard to understand. <laughs> and we all say, yes. <laughs> yes, we agree with you, Peter. Right? We feel that. And one of the beautiful things about studying books of the Bible in a verse-by-verse way is, is you can't like skip past uncomfortable passages, right? So we, we have been studying through 1 Timothy, and I mean, it just so happened to land on Father's Day, where we're talking about this passage, instructed to two men and women and different gender roles. And this is a, a very complex passage. And as you work through the Bible verse-by-verse, you're kind of faced with these instead of maybe topically or depending on, maybe I'm in the mood for talking about joy, so I'll just preach on joy, kind of a thing, right? And I've been reflecting on this passage. I've been studying this passage. I've been reading commentaries on this passage. I've been reading articles, uh, videos, sermons from other pastors ever since we started 1 Timothy, because I knew this passage was coming up, and this is a doozy, as they say. (laughs) I've been trying to understand what Paul is saying, and if it's okay for me to admit it, I'm not really sure. Is that okay to admit? When Paul writes, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Yes. I feel like I can grasp that, right? We believe that. We, we herald that. When Paul writes, I, pr- I urge you to pray for all kinds of people. So, yeah, we can get that. That makes sense to us. When Paul writes, she will be saved through childbearing. Not as clear. <laughs> So I'll present some differing perspectives on the passage. I'll, I'll, sh- I'll share to me as I've been studying what is the most compelling perspective. Uh, but let's start, let's start with the easier part at the beginning, verse 8. So Paul has, has written to Timothy just bef- before this, calling people, calling Timothy to urge all people to pray for all kinds of people in all kinds of ways because God desires all people to be saved because Christ was the mediator, he was the ransom who gave his life for all people. And then he, he gets a little specific in specific instructions to men and to women. So what he says in verse eight, I desire then that in every place, the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now this doesn't mean that women are not called to pray, right? It doesn't mean that women aren't called to lift their hands in prayer. Similar in the next couple of verses, it doesn't mean that men can just wear whatever they want and not care about modesty and self-control, right? But Paul is writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, to a specific problem in a specific culture in Ephesus. So apparently there were some specific local problems and it appears we can infer that there was, the men were quarreling, they were, they were fighting. And Paul says, instead of quarreling and fighting, let the men pray. 
It appears they weren't praying if they had conflicts. There was interpersonal disunity. There was anger. There wasn't peace. There was quarreling. There wasn't edification. And Paul says, I want the men to pray, lifting holy hands. And many of us might be familiar with the prayer, you know, kind of close your, fold your hand. Is it fold your hands? Fold your hands, bow your head, close your eyes. Kind of that, that posture that we might pray at the dinner table before a meal. But in the storyline of the Bible, we see several different postures of prayer. So in the Bible, we see people standing, people kneeling down, people lying down, people with their heads bowed, people with their heads up. There's all kinds of postures of prayer, but lifting up of the hands was a common posture for prayer. So Moses, King Solomon, the prophet Isaiah, all these men are described as lifting up their hands in prayer. Listen to what David writes in Psalm 28. Psalm 28, two, he says, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. So it's a posture of prayer. David prays in Psalm 63. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Jesus, before he returns to heaven, his ascension, he's going back to the father. He blesses his disciples and quote, lifts up his hands. This is a posture of prayer. I often think about, you know, being a father and having young girls, this kind of posture is a posture of surrender and worship. It's like, dad, pick me up. <laughs> I'm hurting. I need your help. Comfort me. Hug me. Right? That's, what, that's what my girls are saying. And this is a posture that we can have when we pray. So we feel like we understand that, right? Paul wants men to lift up their hands in prayer, not fight, not quarrel, pray. And the men, we say, amen. Now, verse nine. Likewise also, so now he's giving instructions to the women, they should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, a more kind of strict fundamental approach to this would be, women, you braid your hair, out of line. You wearing pearls? Wow, sinner. You've got gold on. That would be kind of a more fundamentalist approach to this, which some of our Christian brothers and sisters adopt that, right? No braided hair. Doesn't seem many, even anyone in here is wearing braided hair, so we'd be good, right? <laughs> but who's wearing gold? <laughs> the principle that Paul is teaching is that women should be less concerned with their external looks than with, with good works. They should pursue foremost good works, godliness versus external beauty. Some take this to mean, right, that women can't wear jewelry ever, no makeup, no braided hair. But I don't think he wants this to be a blanket prohibition for any kind of jewelry because in, in the Greco-Roman world, it was marked by kind of this extravagance, this over-the-topness who had the most jewelry, the most gold, the most fancy hair, right? Kind of picture, I don't know, Hunger Games or Princess Leia or something, you know, super like weird, extravagant. Sorry. I'm a dollar. That's why, man. Thank you, Aaron. I knew a Star Wars fan would correct me. Peter writes a similar thing in 1 Peter 3. He's writing to women. He says, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, the inner person, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. I like the way Douglas Moo describes it. 
like this. He says, the issue is not whether women should seek to display beauty, but how they do so. Good deeds glorify God and confer dignity and true beauty on worshiping. Worshiping women will practice this, good deeds, glorifying God. So he says, those who profess godliness will be more about good works than good looks. Right? We, we can say yes and amen to that, right? Now let's get into verse 11. Here we go. You guys ready? Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now again, there are some fundamentalist brothers and sisters who will say women should never speak. And it, it can get a little bit weird. Obviously, we don't agree to that because we, we just counterdict our beliefs just having Stephanie read and pray. She was clearly speaking. There seems to be four general perspectives on, this, on, this, on this, this last set of verses here, 11 through 15. Number one is Paul is chauvinistic, patriarchal. His beliefs are wrong. They don't reflect the word of God. They don't reflect the heart of God. Dismissed. No, thank you, Paul. That's one perspective. Secondly is Paul was addressing a particular group or particular woman in Ephesus. So the culture was different then. It was unique. Therefore, these commands are not binding. They're not applicable for the church today. That's, that's a second perspective. A third perspective is, well, this is not for everyone. Paul says there, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority. Rather, she is to remain quiet. That doesn't mean others, other leaders of the church can't. That is Paul's perspective. Or fourth, you could say an acknowledgement that Paul has written to a particular church in a particular culture in Ephesus, right? We, we all agree on this. But like other difficult teaching in the New Testament, there are principles that are timeless. Throughout church history, Christians have understood Paul's teaching here to mean that women and men are created equally, but have different roles and they complement one another. They have been given different roles that are not to compete with one another, but complement one another. Women are not more capable or gifted than men. Men are not more gifted or capable than women, but they have been given different roles, different assignments from God. And it seems to me Paul's grounding gender roles here, differences in men and women in creation, right? We, we might be prone to think that, well, this is written to a particular culture, so we can kind of, this doesn't apply to us anymore. I think the principles still apply to us today. We might agree, disagree on this. I think the principles still apply because of what Paul says in verse 13, four. And he grounds his argument in creation, in Adam and Eve. Adam's origin is different than Eve's. They were created different. They're both made in the image of God, but Adam and Eve were given different roles, different assignments, different callings. I think it's wise for us to be sensitive and aware of our own cultural values and how they shape us and how we, those values might even shape the way that we read scripture, right? Because at, at taken at face value, you read this to our culture, men and women offended by this. Quiet, submission, silent, <laughs> saved through childbearing, you might just pick the top three things that would offend a woman. These are them, right? Boom. It's offensive for us to hear that men and women are called to different roles in our culture. I think we've been marked by this kind of competition among the sexes. You guys familiar with this, the old duet, anything you can do, I can do better, this man and woman singing to each other? Anything you can do, I can do better. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Right? <laughs> 
we are a part of a culture, oftentimes being in it, growing up in it, that, that we might assume that this is just how everyone is. I remember one time I was listening to a pastor give a sermon and he was describing the challenge of sharing the gospel of grace and forgiveness and mercy to a culture that values honor and respect. Kind of different than, it would, it would kind of characterize maybe more Eastern cultures versus Western. And he tells the story of a son, a son who had a prominent father who wants to leave his father's house and pursue his own exploits. And he goes out and he squanders his father's wealth. He lives a dishonorable life. He wastes the father's money. He brings disrespute to the father's name. And he finally comes to an end of himself and he comes back to the father. And the father throws this big meal, this big feast for the son. And the, the father's family and, and prominent members of the community are gathered together as this, this son who was lost has come back to the family. And the father throws this big feast. And while eating the son, the son picks up the cup that he was drinking in, and he drinks it. And soon after, collapses over his meal dead, poisoned by the father. And the family member and the friends, they, they nod to the father. They, they bid their farewell and they all quietly leave. Now we would understand that parable to, to be like, what? right? The father poisoned his own son. The family and the friends of the father all got up early. They quietly, they pay their respect because honor has been restored to the family. This son who brought shame and dishonor to the family name, who brought the family low in reputation in the community, justice has been paid, brought to the son. The son who was dishonorable, who acted improperly has been taken care of, and now honor has been restored to the family. That is why he was poisoned. Well, we read that as Westerners and think, what? We would never do that. And I, I share this story, this illustration, because the teachings of the gospel, I think both confirm and challenge every part of every culture. They affirm and they confront different parts of every culture. So a, a culture that values honor will be offended, will be confronted by the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus. And maybe a culture like ours that really values love and acceptance and mercy will be confronted with the justice and the wrath and the punishment from God. I think it's, it's, I think it's wise for us to not just dismiss what Paul says in this as if it doesn't apply to us because our cultures are different. And in passages that might seem confusing or that might even seem competing with what other parts of the Bible says, I, we hold to a belief that God is unchangeable. The, the fancy term is immutable. The immu, immu, what is it? Thank you. Mutability of God. So God's word, it doesn't contradict itself. It doesn't change. It stays faithful. So let's consider then what, what might be Paul saying here, these principles that would complement other parts of the, the scripture. We know that being remaining quiet doesn't mean that women aren't to speak. Because just earlier in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul writes, he wants you to pray for, for all people, and then he says, for kings, for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So, right? so we, we, we understood that last week as Christians, it doesn't mean that you never speak. It's talking about a posture of the heart, a behavior that would be described as Tranquil. This is the same word that's used in verse 2 as it is here. 
We know also Paul doesn't mean that women are never to speak because in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gives instructions, assuming that women do speak in the assembly. They're given instructions about how to pray or prophesy. This doesn't mean that there's no, there's no speaking. But why would Paul say this? <laughs> were there some women in Ephesus who were really disruptive? Were there some women who were married to men? They didn't have the same faith. So as a teacher was getting up and speaking, the women would just say, ah, wrong, confront, publicly dismiss. And it was creating this disorderly environment in the church. I think many have sought to reconstruct the cultural setting around this passage which would cause Paul to write this. Maybe the, men, the women weren't as educated, so they, were, they weren't supposed to just ask questions, right? Imagine if someone's trying to give a, a, a lesson and there's just constant chatter back and forth between, that would be hard to understand. One of the most compelling reconstructions of the cultural setting I found in my study was that in the Roman Empire about this time, there was the development in the first century of a, quote, new kind of woman, Get this, this new kind of woman in Roman society expressed itself, valued things that in traditional Roman society were against the traditional values. They, they would flout what would be uh, culturally prohibited behavior before. And these were uh, a lot of times rich women, women of means and power. They could have been widowed. And they, they went away with traditional values. They explored new sexual ethics. They were known by elaborate dress, sexual freedoms. It was kind of a sexual revolution in the Roman Empire. According to one historian, the emergence of this movement was so disturbing to the status quo. This, this development of this new kind of philosophy of a new kind of woman in Roman society was so disruptive, so disturbing, that, that Caesar Augustus actually issued legislation against it. This was so disruptive to society and to life. The Roman imperial woman was, they had greater access to the public sphere in life as opposed to those in Greek society. They had an increased presence in certain public speaking situations. And this mobility made the presence and impact of the revolution impossible to ignore. So the practice of contraception and abortion was prevalent in this new kind of woman. And even though it was condemned by people within Roman society, against the traditional value, against the household and, and the family, it became increasingly widespread because a woman's pursuit of this was now uncumbered. There's no, nothing holding them back. They could pursue this as they wanted. So marriage, family, motherhood was downplayed with this sexual revolution, with the emergence of this new woman in Roman society. And Paul writes to women not to be drawn into this movement. It's not because he doesn't value and cherish women. It's, because he, it's precisely because he does. And he values the gospel and he doesn't want the, the witness of the church for the gospel to be tainted or disrupted. Ultimately, Paul held to a, a gospel ethic that above all else, Paul wanted the church to be known for the gospel, right? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is the, this is the message, the central message of the church. He didn't want any stumbling blocks to be put above for the gospel. And Paul didn't want men or women to be linked with this kind of undignified, those that even to the culture that they're ministering to would cause uh, confusion or uh, ability to dismiss or disregard or not respect or value their opinion. The movement that Paul wants the church and particularly Christian women to be associated with is the movement of Jesus and his gospel. So as I was studying this and I was reading that, that, that's a, that kind of makes sense. That, that helps me a little bit more. 
This seems also to be why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11 about this idea of a head covering, right? Women are to pray with their head covered. If they don't have their head covered, it's a disgrace. It's kind of a confusing passage for us too. And it's because in, in the, a head covering in Roman society was a symbol of a faithful wife. So this new kind of woman would remove the veil to pursue sexual freedoms, new sexual ethics, and the opportunity to hurt the church's reputation, the witness of the gospel was at stake. So being associated or marked with this external apparel, this kind of adornment that was against the traditional code of respectability was hurting the gospel witness of the church. You guys tracking with me? So if this reconstruction of the cultural context is incorrect, is correct, and in, in my perspective, it helps to bring clarity to what Paul is really saying here in this passage. If Timothy was faced with the behavior of men and women downplaying marriage, downplaying raising children, being known more by their dress and their sexual freedoms, this was an opportunity to hurt the witness of the church. And Paul wants the church to be known for the gospel above all else. Philip Towner says it like this, the same secular critical eye that looked with suspicion and disdain on the anti-traditional new woman. So this is in Roman society among secular Roman people viewed this movement with disdain. You guys tracking with me? They viewed this suspicion and disdain on the anti-traditional new woman. Paul did not want Christian women to be typed as quote, new women, since that would bring the church's witness and mission into jeopardy. Now, would I confidently say this is exactly what this is? No, right? I'm still unsure, but this is to me the, the most compelling understanding of what might've been going on in the culture that helps us make sense of why Paul is writing this. Does that make sense? Thank you for your head nods. So Paul grounds or roots his argument in the creation order. Look what he says in verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, it seems like Paul's intentionally taking shots at women. He is, as the youth might say, throwing shade. <laughs> Verse 15, it says, but she will be saved through childbearing. It's like if you can make it even more confusing for us, Paul. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So why does Paul say Adam was not deceived? It was Eve. Just throwing a whole bunch of blame. <laughs> Now I've heard pastors, I've heard other people use this verse as a way to say, well, women are more gullible. They're more prone to deception. They're more naturally gullible. But it's not as though Paul doesn't want them to teach anything. Later on, we'll see Paul wants women to teach other women. He wants women to teach children. I like the way John Stott wrote about this verse in this way. He said, the essence of Eve's part in the, in the fall was, was not that she was deceived, but that she took an improper initiative, usurped Adam's authority, and thus reversed their respective roles. So the deception is not so much that she might have even bought into the lie from the serpent, but that the roles were reversed. I think it's very significant that the serpent came to Eve, not Adam. If these roles were given by God in the created order, then the tactic of the enemy would be reverse these, right? 
Adamson was, was not in being deceived, but passively standing by, failing to protect and love Eve. It's, Paul is not saying Adam has no part in here. He's just this guiltless, innocent bystander. Poor Adam. He, the whole, he gets blamed for the whole curse because this Eve was deceived. Not what Paul's saying. And this has led some to believe that when Paul writes, yet she will be saved through childbearing, Paul is talking about a kind of save from deception. The deception that, that women are to break free from the this, this shackles of motherhood, the shackles of raising kids. They can pursue things that are apart from their, their God-given role. They're to embrace the role, Paul is saying. Paul could be saying women are kept safe from deception when they embrace the roles that God has given them when they properly, appropriately value the gift of bearing children. One of the commentators I was studying this week helpfully said it, William Mounts, he said, he selects childbearing because it is the most notable example of the divinely intended difference in the role between men and women. Kind of a fundamental difference between men and women. Women can do this, men can't. What is it? Literally produce life. It's amazing. <laughs> Man can't do that. Women have been given this beautiful gift of bearing children. So he selects child becoming because it's the most notable example of divinely intended difference in the role between men and women. And most women throughout history have had children. To select childbearing is another indication that the argument is transcultural. For childbearing is not limited to a particular culture, but it's permanent and an ongoing difference between men and women. The fact that God has ordained that women and only women bear children indicates that the differences in role between men and women are rooted in the created order. So it's likely that Paul selected this childbearing because it represents a woman's special role in the created order, to care for the family. These women who are wives and mothers, God has given them a special responsibility to bear kids, to give birth to kids, to raise kids. Now, I didn't come across a single pastor, a single theologian, a single New Testament scholar that taught women will be saved in the sense of saved from their sins by having kids. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. That would contradict the very gospel that Paul preached. Paul is not saying here that women must be married and that those married women must have kids in order to be saved. Not saying that either. Elsewhere in his letters, Paul commends singleness. Remember, we don't, we don't believe God's words contradict each other. These are complementing things. And Paul says there, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control, this is just the mark of a genuine Christian. Denny Burke says it like this. So a wife's fulfillment of this role will be one of the evidences of perseverance in the faith. Salvation is future in this verse. She will be saved. Thus, it is not an entry into salvation that is in view, but the future consummation of salvation. Women who embrace their God-ordained role while continuing in the virtues of faith and love and holiness with self-control will find themselves saved on the last day. This making more sense of the passage? So given what Paul writes in other parts of the New Testament, our belief in, in the Bible doesn't contradict itself. God doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind. God doesn't contradict what his word says is this passage is not teaching that women aren't to speak. Women... This passage is not teaching women have to be married and have kids. This passage is not teaching that women will be saved in the sense of saved from their sins because they have birth to kids, give birth to kids. Now, certainly mothers would agree that having kids 
is certainly a way that God uses kids to bring sanctification, right? All the mothers would say, yes, amen. Amen. But Paul seems to be saying here that instead of rejecting, refusing, women who are called to marriage and motherhood are to embrace this role. Not take improper initiative or leadership, not live a life of immodesty or disrespect, not live with no dignity and therefore place stumbling blocks to the witness of the gospel. But the gospel is to be central and, and, and foremost in, in the message. So after my study, my prayer, my meditation, my contemplation, this is where I've landed. This is how I seek to understand this passage. If you guys have further questions, would love to talk with you. I studied on this passage a lot. Would love to share commentaries and books that I read on this if you are, if you are interested. But while we may disagree on the specifics of how to interpret this passage, right, and if this passage is one of the most debated throughout church history, and Theologians much smarter than I, old, old dead guys, much smarter than I have written about this and have struggled to understand this. I'm, I'm okay with not being confident in exactly knowing what this means. I want to be aware of the pride that we might have to say, oh no, <laughs> we figured it out. This little young pastor from Des Moines, he figured it out. Oh, wow. And we all, we are prideful and self-righteous. It seems, though, that we would do well to think through these issues that Paul raises in 1 Timothy 2, right? What does the Bible teach on leadership, men and women's roles? In many ways, a culture that's, and we're being pressured to face very similar pressures in Ephesus. We can kind of conclude from the teacher in Ecclesiastes that there's nothing new under the sun, Right? Our society is asking questions of what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? What is sex? What is gender? Are they the same? Are they different? Traditional views on sexuality are being challenged. New sexual ethics are being explored. It's very similar, isn't it? There's questions of morality. What is natural? What is the freest form of self-expression? What are the roles in marriage? Right? All these kind of questions. We are still facing these today. And the heart of Paul in 1 Timothy seems to be a concern with correcting false teachers and calling Timothy to teach what is in accordance with sound doctrine. Teach, focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ came to save sinners, that salvation is offered by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ, that Jesus has given his life as a ransom for all. So as a church, therefore, we want to be about this too the display, the advancement, the proclamation of the gospel with our words, with our actions, with our demeanor, and with our posture. We might disagree on the specifics of this, but we can all agree this is what we want to be known for as a church, amen? The gospel of Jesus Christ. And in my perspective, a view on male and female roles in which they are equal and yet complementary, it demonstrates both an example of the gospel and points to the power of the gospel. So I'll just lay forth my perspective on this. My wife, Stephanie, is a very capable leader. In many ways, she's a better communicator than I am. She's clear. She's more honest. She's better organized. She displays great wisdom and care. I can tend to be passive, distant, withdrawn, self-focused. Yet by faith, when I take 
initiative, which is how I think about leadership, taking the initiative. When I take the initiative in self-sacrificial love and giving myself to Stephanie and seeking her good, her flourishing. And when Stephanie defers, when she willingly places herself under this kind of leadership, she respects, she follows. This to me is a compelling, beautiful dynamic of the gospel. A dynamic and a picture that our culture has no frame of reference for. Because we, can, we, we think there's kind of two options. Well, they have to be equal and have equal roles, or there's a dominant, oppressive male leadership and patriarchy and hierarchy and all these kind of, all these kind of things. But functionally, I've seen that there always is a functional leader. And oftentimes, men can struggle with being passive and self-centered and self-focused, and, and the wife takes the position of, of leadership. But I think when two individuals, they come together and they're not competing, but they're complementing, this is a picture of the gospel. It demonstrates the reality that there is authority in the world. There is a higher authority. There is authority to be submitted to. There is a call that all people are submit to. This demonstrates the very reality of God, his authority, his leadership, his lordship, his rule. And it also demonstrates the beauty that this king of the universe, this ruler with all authority and with all power and might came and used his position of power, his position of authority to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. It is my conviction that it's a great privilege and honor and joy for a husband and wife to reflect this gospel in these complementary roles that the church has been won by the love and the grace and the leadership of Jesus and the church willingly and joyfully submits to following Jesus. And this posture of the church to Jesus is reflected in a wife. And Jesus has joyfully given up his life for the good of the church. He has laid down his life, self-sacrificial love, self-giving love for the other. This is the heart of Jesus. And this is reflected in a husband. This to me is a compelling vision of marriage. This to me is a, is a vision in which two people are giving of themselves to each other that demonstrates that the gospel had to be at work in this. <laughs> Husbands don't naturally do this. Wives don't naturally do this. This demonstrates the power of Jesus in a person's life, in a family. Maybe I'm getting a little too excited. You guys still with me? If this is the design of God, I don't think it's restrictive. Oppressive. It's, in fact, life-giving, freeing. It's to be responded to by faith, path of joy. Because in our natural selves, in our natural selves, we put ourselves in the place of God and we want to define ourselves. We want to define right and wrong apart from God. And we can be marked by a kind of self-centered, self-focused pursuit. When others cross us, when others get in the way of us getting what we want, we get angry. We fight. All the way back to the garden, the design of God was attacked. Adam and Eve believed that God wasn't good, that they could define right and wrong for themselves. But even after their rebellion, the the consequences of sin entering the world, God made a promise to these, these two humans who brought brokenness and sin into the world. It's a beautiful promise. The gospel all the way back to the beginning, even right after they sinned, God made a promise that from the offspring of the woman, 
a seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. This serpent who tried to subvert, to reverse the way God intended life is gonna be crushed. The power that he has on his people, the temptation to cause them, to force them to be enslaved, to sin is gonna be crushed. And the offspring of Eve would come. And unlike any other human being, this offspring of Eve would live in perfect submission to God the Father, would live in perfect accordance with the design and the will of God. He ultimately would give himself up for sinners. This man, Jesus Christ, he was lifted up. His body was lifted up in the place of sinners. His hands were spread out and nailed to a Roman cross as he gave himself for sinners like you and me. He bore the punishment of sin upon himself. So men can pray. We can lift up holy hands because of what Jesus has done. He has cleansed the hands of sinful men. They've received a heart of love, a heart that's more in line with Jesus, a heart that seeks edification and encouragement and others, not self and anger and quarreling. Women can embrace their God-given role, can follow their husband's leadership and submission because their hearts have been changed and transformed by Jesus. And church, I pray that, that as we give ourselves to learn, as we all give ourselves to learn in submission, full submission to Jesus, that as we are being taught that we might embrace our God-given roles for the glory of God and for the flourishing of this church, that we would be more concerned with a life of good works, not good looks, that may men and women and teachers who, have been, who are being taught and pastors and church members embrace the role that they have been given for the glory of God. May God give us grace, even when we don't understand a complex passage, that Jesus is the one that we are to depend upon, that Jesus is the one that we look to, that Jesus is the one that we need help. And may God give us grace, even when we don't understand a passage like this, when we still may be unclear what in the world is going on in this passage, that we don't lose sight, we don't lose our focus on what is most important, loving God and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Amen? Let's pray. Father, your, your word at times can be confusing to us. It's puzzling. And, and we might be tempted, Father, to dismiss what you write, to uh, cancel or to explain away that somehow this is, this is wrong, this doesn't make sense, and, and the problem was with the word. Father, I pray that you might give us the humility to say that, that we don't understand. The problem is with us. There are things we don't understand quite yet. There is a, there's not a full understanding that we've been given. And, and this is, I, I believe, Father, a, a, your intent is to humble us, to cause us to feel and to believe that we, we, we don't, we can't, we're, we're not going to have everything figured out. And, and we are in a posture, a position of, of dependence. We need you. Father, would you humble us from, from this word as maybe we don't quite understand what it means. But we do know, Father, that you, you have called us to, to love you, to walk humbly before you, 
to give our lives to the grace of God that's been bestowed upon us. We thank you that, that your word is clear and sufficient, that you have made known to us all that needs to be made known, that salvation is found in no other name but Jesus, that, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and, and you have saved us. I pray that you'd be with us, fathers and men this day, that we would be men of prayer, that we would be men who lift up holy hands in prayer, that we would be men who, who take the initiative in serving and loving those around us. Thank you for being our perfect father who treats us with grace and mercy. You, you don't abandon us. You're, you don't cast us away. You, you call us in. Even our sins are invitations to come to you. Thank you, Father, that one day we will see you face to face and what's known in part will be known in full. And we will be in perfect fellowship with you and with all of our brothers and sisters that have put their faith in you. Lord, thanks for this church. Thank you for a church where I can be honest <laughs> and open about my own struggle with, with what your word teaches, that you, have, you are cultivating and building in this church a community of grace and compassion and understanding. Lord, I thank you for this very evidence of your work in our church, that we are free to be ourselves, that we can be known and loved because this is how you treat us. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for the, the men in this room who are examples of faith and humility and good works. Would you cultivate more men in this church that are examples of servants and humble leaders who give themselves for the good of others? We pray that, that our sons will be trained in this way of compassion and gentleness. Would you rid us of a domineering or harshness, controlling kind of leadership, but a, a leadership that is marked by service and understanding. Seeking to understand and to give ourselves in humility. Lord, you are so good to us. We praise you for your work that you have done on behalf of Jesus. And we pray, Jesus, would you help us to become more like you? In your name we pray, amen.